Today on Inside the Ropes, what more can I say than Mike Clayton, the most insightful voice in Australian golf, shares his thoughts with us on some important matters, and we catch up with two women around the world carrying the Australian flag to high honours. Let's go. You're listening to Inside the Ropes, Australia's must-listen-to golf show with exclusive content from both home and abroad. Subscribe through your favourite podcast app or listen at golf.org.au. Make sure you do subscribe, folks. Stick a couple of stars alongside it. Four or five's the preferred option, if you wouldn't mind, and uh, it'll be great to have you as part of the family uh, on a regular basis. Uh, welcome to episode number 179 of the program. Great to have you with us. On a truly uh, a staggering week, uh, staggering for a couple of shots uh, at the end of the penultimate event in the uh, FedEx playoffs, which we'll, I'm sure we'll spend a bit of time talking about today, the playoffs and the last two shots. Hazy standing by, about to join us. Mike Clayton's going to be with us. It's been too long. Uh, a bunch of stuff will boil up with Clates. Uh, Stacey Peters has caught up with Steph Kiriakou and Maddie Hinson Tolchard. Their stories will be told on the way through today. Um, lovely to have you with us. Hello, Hazy. Hello, Murray. We've drifted away from uh, reading out five-star reviews. There's probably a hole in our podcast. I used to enjoy that. No, we need to get back to that. Perhaps we're not getting any. Maybe we need to start <laughs> revving that up a little <laughs> bit more. So wherever you download your podcast from, do it here with Inside the Ropes. And if you stick a five-star rating on it, this is the only way, this is the guaranteed way of getting your name on the podcast. Uh, do it. Subscribe, five-star rating, write a nice review. Hazy will print it out. Hazy will read it on the show. So uh, we're or, shameless or, in that regard. Yeah. You could shoot a 55, Andy, like that bloke in uh, oh. Oklahoma this week. How about that? So clearly, if you want to shoot 55, you go to Oklahoma. That's that's where you well, go apparently. to do it. What are the odds <laughs> of that happening? So this, this bloke, I've forgotten his name. It's immaterial, an American yeah, guy Alex who matched... Match- Thank you. Match Reen Gibson's world record of 55. Uh, just extraordinary. And both in Oklahoma. Um, what is it about? Unbel- you must have been to Oklahoma at some stage. You've travelled extensively <laughs> around America. What is it? Is the air thinner and the courses are more generous in Oklahoma? What's going? Is it the hospitality of their golf courses? What's going on? I don't know. I don't know what it is. But summer, long, bouncy sort of fairways. Their courses aren't long. They're, they're, you know, they're short on territory a little bit there, so... Bouncy summer conditions, Andy. Who knows? I don't know. Fifty-five is next bit level. Of we, we, we... Oscar and Ham- bit of Oscar and Hammerstein in the background, just to get the mood <laughs> up and about, and all of that sort of stuff. So. Um, uh, righto. Let, let's just get. It, it was extraordinary what we saw. Um, last putt yeah. in regulation, first putt in the playoff. It just, just. I'm still shaking my head in disbelief. To be honest with you. Well, I sat there and I had Dustin Johnson in my tipping competition because um, I'm running out of weeks to use good players and uh, there he was. I didn't barrack for him necessarily, but I'm sitting there thinking, I'd really like to see him make this just for, for my own personal reasons, but he's not going to make this. There's no way he's going to make this. Uh, and that's a putt that he poured in of 60-odd feet that was uh, out of this world. Like, it was so yeah. fast. And I thought, that's the, that might be the best putt I've seen this year. That's probably better than Justin Thomas's one that he um, used to get into the playoff, and then Morikawa answered him um, a few weeks back. I I just thought that that might be the best part I've seen this year. Um, mm. You wouldn't, for all the tea in China, give it the remotest possibility that you'll see one better five minutes hence. It was unbelievable, and when. 
John Rahm, who, you know, let's be honest, we'll talk about this in a second, Andy. He, he nearly coughed it up with the most ridiculous penalty of all time. Absolute yes. brain fade in the third round. Um, for him to pour in a putt of, again, 60-odd feet, but from the top of, you know, maybe not Everest, but K2, across three tiers, <laughs> sloping three ways, it was unbelievable. And even as good a putt as it was, it still would have run five or six feet past and given him a tricky yep. one back. Um, just the two best, not back-to-back, but back-to-back putts, you, well, I suppose they were, uh, you'll ever see in the PGA Tour. Unbelievable. You'll never see it again. No, no. And everybody listening to... The, what, I, what I marginally lament is the fact that everybody listening to this show uh, loves golf and plays golf and has a comprehension for just how um, significant and, and um, bizarre and magnificent that, that chain of events was. If you're not a golf fan and you don't play the game of golf, uh, it, it will not get the recognition that it deserves... Uh, around the world, outside of the golf bubble. It, it was as extraordinary as anything you'll see in sport mm. this year. And we've said that a couple of times this year already, but it truly is. And you can throw any sport, the most dynamic, you know, powerful, ballistic sport you can throw at it with the most spectacular highlights. These this, this, these two putts back-to-back, they sit alongside anything we're going to see in, in 2020. <laughs> One of the funnier things, Andy, about it to me was I was actually thinking afterwards, I'm thinking, oh, my God, that is, they are so good. They're actual legitimate sport highlights, not just nerdy yep. golf highlights yep. that really don't find a way onto the nightly news services around the, the world and the country. Um, but those putts were worthy of being on there. But then the irony of it was they were both in transit for so long that it made it impossible for them to get in the sports section. It's exactly right. Exactly right. It. Yeah. No, it was it was bizarre. So so Ram wins. Um, yeah, from an Australian perspective, Scotty sort of played his way out of the final thirty. He just had a really, really messy, un Adam Scott like in in the form that he's in at the moment. He's returned to play in outstanding nick, really. And this this round sort of came um, out of the blue a bit. I, I don't think anybody expected seventy five yeah. from Adam Scott in that last. No, this round. is the outrider of his um, return. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could cut him some slack for a couple of. Rusty rounds in the PGA, but um, yeah, he'd been playing so well, and I actually, to be honest, half expected to wake up and find him right at the top of the leaderboard on so on, on, our, yep. on our Monday morning. So um, very unusual for him in the last eighteen months to have turned that in, especially at the crunch time. He's been becoming more of a crunch player in my estimation. Mm. So um, yeah, I mean, blip on the radar, brutal course, just shows the um, you know the, the, the treachery of some of the courses set up like that. I mean, that was a ridiculously hard course, um, Olympia Fields, and he just paid the price when he when he found the sand a couple of times. So, I don't know. Uh, it, I, think he's, I think he's legitimately in the top five or six players in the world at the moment, like form-wise yeah. on the... Yep. Um, and I really, really hope for his sake that he gets a chance to cash in and show that rather than just accumulating um, reasonable finishes, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Um, Cam Smith, good weekend. Uh, he gets through to the final 30. Day and Leishman were nowhere um, at Olympia Fields. Leish still squeaks through uh, by virtue of, you know, uh, previous wins and um, and seconds. So he gets into the final 30. 30 over is ridiculous. I mean, I can imagine Mark Leishman um, not raising the white flag. That That's the wrong thing to say. But I can imagine Leishman having a moment... When he was playing, you know, well and truly out of contention, where he's thinking, oh, "This, 
this thing, you know. And he hasn't been in great form coming in, but I can imagine him having a moment where he just goes, oh, look, this, this, this isn't, this is not what I'm, you know, what I'm gearing myself to be. I'm not, I'm not, I want to be a major championship winner. I want to win significant tour events, playoffs, drifting out. I'm still going to get into the final 30. I've still got a big payday coming. I don't know. I'm trying to get inside Mark Leishman's um, foot joys and wonder what, what, in what universe and what mind sort of space he has to be in to shoot 30 over somewhere. It just it doesn't... Unless there's something wrong with him, and I'm not sure whether you know anything, unless he's carrying a bad back or he's got some injury issues, um, surely he would have pulled out if he did. I just don't know how, how he does that. Uh, he actually played by himself uh, in a one ball on the, on the final round. Yeah, I think he might have done it on both the Saturday and the Sunday over there. Uh, and okay. he... He uh, raced around the course on the Sunday and found his groove a little bit. Like it was, I think it was a 73. It wasn't bad or good. It was just there. Um, and he gave a fascinating interview that only Mark Leishman in that entire field would give afterwards because he had some spare time. And I think everyone else who finished 30 over wouldn't trouble the scorers, but he bowled up to the PGA people who um, wanted to you know, see how he was, basically. I think it was more of a... Um, a pastoral approach more than an approach for Check an interview. Him, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he was fine. He was absolutely fine. He goes, I've just battled um, to find it since I came back. He said, I didn't play nearly as much as some of the other people did. I spent a lot of family time and I just haven't found the groove. Um, so he was so... The interview smacked of him being him. You know, he said, I've got a lot bigger things in my life to concern me than... Um, you know, a round of 79 or 80 or 78, whatever order they were in to start the tournament. Um, he said, it's it's not great for my golf, but um, it'll come back. I just need to basically, well, I hate the Tiger Woods saying Andy, but put in the reps. He didn't say that, but that's <laughs> yeah, what he's got to yeah, do. Yeah. Um, he said, uh, uh, interestingly, he said he tried to play slow on Saturday and figure it all out as he was going around. Um, and it just didn't work so that he didn't get too far in front of the group immediately behind him, the two ball. And then he said on the Sunday, he just played to get his heart rate back up and feel the buzz and walk up and hit the ball, put a bit of pressure on himself that way. And he said he okay. found it a lot right. easier. So I, I think that the days of 80 won't, won't be long, um, but it clearly he has to go and you know, find his groove here somewhere because he was so good before the break. He was really, yeah, absolutely. In, you know, playing again like a top 20, top 15 player in the world. So, you know, the invite still to East Lakes this week is, is testament to that. But yeah, he's struggling right now. So we come to the final leg of this thing and, and it's broken record time for me, particularly <laughs> when it comes to this. Um, the, the, the numbers are, are, they're obscene. So $15 million for the winner. It's, 30, it's guaranteed purse, obviously. $15 million to the winner, all the way down to $395,000 if you finish 30th. So turn US. up, tee it up, walk around, $395,000 US. Jumps in your kick. You could shoot 150 over and you're still going to get it. The, the, the thing about this thing, other than the, the obscenity of the money, and you finish in the top eight, you make over a million bucks, right? So it's $1.1 million down to eighth. $950,000 for finishing ninth. It, the money's an obscenity. and It's an absolute obscenity, right? Um, when you think about how how better this money could be spent in the game. And I understand it's a promoted event and therefore they can do with it what they want. But the problem with this, there's no bang for their buck. There's no prestige involved in this thing. 
There's no drama. <laughs> there's no um, prestige. It is. It is without any sense of event or occasion, or or um, magnitude. It's just. It's a cash grab. It's for the richest thirty blokes of the year. It's. It's. It's not working. It, they've got to rethink this thing. I'm all for a playoffs series. I'm all for it. But this thing just doesn't work. There's nothing. There's nothing hanging on. Well, I have no interest in Rory going. But can Rory defend? I've got no interest in, you know, DJ with his ten shot lead on some other people in the field. I'm not I've got no event in it. I've got no interest in any of that stuff. It's um, I don't know about you, but it just doesn't work. Yeah, I can't think of a solution. I mean, it's just a, it's a method of keeping the FedEx name bubbling around. Yep. You know, yep. and to give them value for their sponsorship, I get that, but. Um, I'd rather see it distributed more equitably among the game, but at least among the players. I, I think this, I'm using, going to use your word, Andy, construct of setting Dustin Johnson up with a 10-shot lead over Billy Horschel and Cameron Champ and those and Cam Smith, for, for that matter, is outrageous. It doesn't give, it's not equitable to, to no. give um, Cameron Smith a 10-shot head or leeway between him and Dustin Johnson. It's not expecting to find the best player that week and crown them the tour champion. There's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of flaws. I'm going to be interested to talk to Clates about this, this in a few minutes' time. But, um, yeah, this is to make things easier for non-golf fans to watch on television on the final Sunday of the season has destroyed what the tour championship once was, in my estimation. And clearly, it's a money grab. So... Um, if you look down the field, there's probably, you know, we, you can make a case that Billy Horschel can come from 30th to win, but I can't see that happening um, when he's got to, he's got to make up 10 shots on Johnson, but he's got to go past 29 other blokes. And when they're of that caliber, that's really hard. So, you know, he, he's effectively handicapped out of it. People will say that's the problem that he could have done better through the year. It uh, doesn't make it interesting to watch this week from my perspective. No, that's the problem. It just doesn't. And does it for you? Do you when you think about um, significant um, significant criteria on somebody's ultimate CV? Do, does the FedEx Cup um, champion or whatever it's called? I don't know what the, what we call the person who wins this thing. But does that strike you as being a other than the fact that there's a lot of money attached to it? Do, do, do you does that jump off the page at you as a significant career milestone? No, and I think that, you know, if, if it does for someone, I think I can just say two words would be Billy Haas, who obviously won this, took the money that time. And would you consider him in the upper echelon of, of players of the, of the modern not. generation? And the answer is absolutely no. Yeah. yeah, no. So it's, uh, if, you, if, you, if you put it to the test at the start of the year, if you took finances out, because clearly that's a, a factor, but if you took yeah. finances out, it would rank clearly behind the majors, behind the WGCs, behind the time-honoured tour events. Um, yeah. you know, national the Opens, mate. Colon- national European Colonials. Opens. Yep. Yeah. yeah. All yeah. those. Um, and then maybe we get to it. But only then because it's the Tour Championship, not because it's the FedEx Cup finale. No. So no. I don't, I don't no. know. I, 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 I struggle with it. And I'm missing badly this year, Andy. And we always talk about this, the finale to the um, now the Corn Ferry Tour. Because mm. as opposed to seek, seeking an extra couple of zeros to appease the, you know, your 14th wing of your house, that's real-life drama and, and playing yep. for your future and your family and your mortgage and stuff. And I miss that. So, <laughs> um, 
Uh, I don't know. We say that every year, probably drowning on a little bit about it, but well, I agree with you wholeheartedly. It's just the challenge. I think, look, we'll, not, we'll get off this, but it's the challenge for the for the designers of this thing. Come up with something that that creates a sense of drama and theatre um, because at the moment it's sort of sadly lacking, I reckon, going to this. But that's what other people listening to this might completely disagree. If you do, let us know. Uh, and we'd, we'd love to read out some emails. If you've got a really strong view to the contrary, let us know by all means. We're not Mr. suggesting Mr. that. FedEx, Mr. FedEx yep. loves it, Andy. That, and well, that's, when, yeah. when you're signing checks for XD8 billion dollars, mm. that's really what matters. And and the and mm. Dustin Johnson and and Thomas and Ram and Simpson and all these guys, they're not going to argue about it this week. So uh, they're yeah. just going to put their hand out and fatten their wallet. Uh, so another thing we'll talk to Clates about, but I'll, I'll get your view before we get to Clates and see where he, the Sophia Popov fallout. It's been the talking. It's really been the talking point in the world of golf. Uh, since her, her you know, triumph at Troon. What have you made of you know, Mike Wan and the different treatment that Popov's got because of her non-member status? Where have you sat on all of this? Uh, I'm, I'm going to be intrigued to hear what Clayton says. Um, he and I had a brief chat about it a couple of days ago off-Broadway off here, so I know sort of what he's going to say, but I actually... I can't believe I'm going to say this, Andy, but I'm going to fall in the camp of um, the commissioner here. Yep. I like the fact that he's sticking to rules and not changing things on the fly. I really would like to see Sophia pop off in that tournament. Everyone would. But I don't like the fact that you would have to bump someone else out to get there who was playing by the rules and thought they were in for an extended period of time only to be bumped. Um I'm sure that Clates will have a counter-argument to that. But I like the fact that, that um, you know, she, she's going to have to do what 2,000 other women who want to be in that tournament have to do and qualify properly. Um, yep. I, she's going to be a fixture at major championships and on that tour for years now. And She hopefully does good things every week, but I, I don't make anything of the fact that she's German. That's been That's mm-hmm. a disgrace for people to say that they don't want people because... She's not American. That's um, that's not true. The the most global tour there is is the LPGA tour. Absolutely. Um, yep. Yeah. I mean, there's going to be people who say it doesn't make sense. I'm sure Clates is going to be among that group um, to not have the hottest property in women's golf in a major championship. I get that, but I also think that we we all sit here and we carp on about the AFL or the NRL or whatever changing rules mid season um, mm. while you're crossing the stream suddenly the tide changes that's and everyone hates it to a person we hate that stuff here we are with mike Wan doing exactly what we want our football bosses to do and he's getting slammed for it i don't i don't agree And, and credit to him too to front up and give a really deep and considered reasoned explanation for the decision they'd made it would have been very easy to send out a statement and there it is it's contained in a six paragraph statement here's a couple of quotes you can use for your stories he didn't do that it was like a nine or ten minute um, video presentation he sat there and explained it in great detail and i think there's a bit of credit there's a bit of credit to that for that so i I think um i think you know credit to him for whether you agree or disagree credit to him for the way he handled it One of our friends and regulars on this show, Christina Lance, is in charge of the way that the LPGA Tour does um, their media. And and I think she deserves a massive thumbs up for obviously driving that to happen. Um, Mm. The big 
sole difference between the LPGA and all the men's tours is the heart, the soul, the feel of the women's game. And that Mike One contributes to that um, weekly, I believe. Um, and that's so different. You would never, ever hear um, Pally or uh, Monaghan come out and, and defend a position like that. You just It just would never happen. Um, mm-hmm. So and not and if it did, it would be after uh, great tumult, um, and he'd be forced kicking and screaming to a microphone. Where I think Mike Wan is proactive of the people for the people, can explain his position, and he said, "You don't have to like this decision, but this is why." I th- I think that's great. He's not being dictatorial in any way. So I don't know. I I have full faith in him, and I really think the LPGA stands out as the best run tour. Um, despite its lack of finance compared to the others, the, of all yeah. the global tours. Here, here, Mark. Here, here, indeed. Uh, look, look, there's a heap of other stuff we, we've got, we're going to get to. We'll, we'll go through the Australians around the world um, a little bit later on in the program. There's some terrific, speaking of women and Europe, there's another great um, result for Steph Kiriakou and... Um, um, Stacey Peters is going to catch up with her for us, has caught up with her for us. We'll hear their chat a little bit later on the program. But Mike Clayton, there's a lot of stuff we want to um, uh, back over with Clates uh, and a whole lot of other stuff we need to talk to him about as well. We'll do that on the other side of this. You're listening to Inside the Ropes. Let's go back Inside the Ropes with Golf Australia. It's far too long, uh, regular listeners of the show. Uh, since we've heard the voice of Michael Clayton on this program, and it's a joy to welcome uh, the wise man of Inside the Ropes back onto the uh, show. Hello, Clates. How are you, mate? I'm very good, Andy. I'm locked out at Sandra's Beach, which is the time you came and moved down here and joined the joined us. Well, I nearly had a house down there, and some idiot um, bit, outbid me. So I, I, um, I was very disappointed about that. Is it must be, it must be incredibly frustrating though, Clates, to be down there and within a three iron of um, the golf course perimeter and not be able to jump the fence and go and play. It is, but I did um, sneak onto the beach the other day and hit a few five irons, which was probably I'm sure if you're allowed to do that, you're probably I'm not sure. But anyway. It was nice to have a couple of balls on the beach for the five run and pretend I was Seve. So you can see why Seve became, taught himself to be such a great player. Because playing on the beach is the best way to learn how to play. Because you've got to hit the ball properly and you can you can learn how to play bunker shots. You just go with one club and kind of hit little cut-up five irons by bunker shots. You've really got to hit the ball right off the top of the sand. It's a fantastic way to learn how to play golf. I would actually like to, we've all done it, um, at some stage of our lives, probably not as often as we should, but I actually quite like to come down the beach one day and watch you do that, Clates. There's something in the back of my mind, Hazy, that thinks that would be not only interesting but pretty instructive. I think it would be a good thing to go and have a look at. I actually think I can see a uh, Justin Falconer video coming up here, Clates. I'd never thought about that, but when you say that, I can see us down the beach doing that for sure because... Yeah. As someone, as someone who is like your average run-of-the-mill amateur who comes in too steeply and from outside to in, that's already sounds like the perfect drill to flatten out my swing. Yeah, it's perfect. But we, we used to play in Jersey was one place where the tide used to go out so far, and you you would just go out to the beach, the tit balls on the beach for ages. It was fantastic fun, and it was it was hard, hard sand, packed sand. So it was it was a great place to go and practice. God, that would actually be, when you think about it, you, uh, it would be hard to do it down the front beach, Clates. You'd probably, I'm tipping you down the back beach down there, but 
yeah, the front beach yeah, down yeah, there down the when, when it. Yeah, but when the when the tide does get out there, you get a bit of that sense every now and again. There's parts of that morning to peninsula front beach. I know there's generally too many people down there walking their dogs and whatever. You you probably got people that might be become a bit of an issue, but gee, just from an environmental. Um, Good for the soul type experience. It would be absolutely magnificent thing to do. Yeah, well, there's no one on the back beach really. There's you know, sort of five or ten people there when you go down there, but um, oh. it's a it's great it's great practice. So when we all get out of lockdown, if you anyone is anywhere near a packed hard beach and there aren't many people down there, go and take a few balls down there and hit them. It's good practice. I love the concept, Clace, but Andy, all I can see is Kramer and marine biologists and things like this with with tightless wedged in spouts of whales. That's all I can picture right now. Hey, Clates, we've we've already bounced a few things around the first segment, and and there's a couple of them we're really keen to get your thoughts on. So let's just pick up where we left off. Sophia Popov, the, the fallout from her win. Um, obviously, the you know the the A and A not getting in the field, and you know the different sort of tour membership um, guarantees that that she secured as a non-member. Where do you sit on the way this has been handled by the LPGA? Well, I thought Mike Wine's video was great. You know, we're not going to make rules on the run in the middle of the season. But this is the but, um, and I hate I hate to term the pub test, but. Yeah. If there was ever something that failed the pub test, this was it, wasn't it? You know, can you imagine someone winning the French Open tennis and then not being, not even being in the field at Wimbledon? It would be so ridiculous and so outrageous that it just would never happen. But because of the way the rules are, uh, I mean, if she'd been one shot better at the tour school, she'd have been exempt because she would have been a member because she would have satisfied category 11, which is, um, if you're in the top, if you're, if you're not exempt but in the top 20 on the main list, you're in the tournament because she wasn't a member. Then her money doesn't count, even though the $600,000 plus she won would easily be enough to put her in the top 20 on the main list. Because she wasn't a member, her mate, the money doesn't count. So it's like winning the French Open tennis and then get, turning up the next week and seeing you have zero prize money against your name because the money didn't count because you weren't a member. I mean, it's just such a stupid, um, well, you know, I kind of get why they've got the rules, sort of, but it's, um, yeah, it completely fails the common sense test to me. So, so how do you, if, if you are going to put her in, can you put her in as just an additional player, bump the field out by an extra one and mess up your, your, you know, your grouping numbers, or do you have to punt someone from the tournament? No, it's a limited field event, so you, I, I don't know exactly what the rules are, but it's not a full 144-person field, so if you were putting her in, you would have to knock someone out because it's a limited field event with a caddy in it for Sue one year. I think there were less than 100 players. I might be wrong, so I can check, but you, it would mean adding another player and, and another group, and I'm assuming daylight is not an issue. So... I'm not sure why you couldn't add the German girl who won the um, British Women's Amateur of the week after. It would be kind of a cool group. Or, because they always have some really... That was how Sue got in. She got in, you know, I came for She and Minji got in as amateur exemptions. Though I think one and two in the world in the amateur ranking, and that's how they got in. Yeah. So they invite amateurs, and um, 
uh, you, know, you can put a man on the moon, you can figure out a way to get Sophia Popoff in the A&A championship. Well, of course, they, they, she's they, been they, great. They, I mean, you know, she's been great. She hasn't uttered a word of complaint or said anything. And surely people arguing, whether they're arguing on her behalf or, or they're just arguing for the incongruity of a rule that you know, sees someone who wins win the major championship not even be in the next one. And, you know, it's just silliness. But... but um, Mike one made a good case. He, he argued. Yep. He, he argued. I'm not sure it was his own personal view, but he certainly argued the case of the board pretty well. And said, you know, we're not going to make rules on the run in retrospect when we don't have a rule that covers it, which was kind of fine. But you know, it's just well, the pub test Hazy, complete failed for the pub test. So, so, so Hazy, you're the sort of Toby Ziegler of, of Golf Australia. You, you need to see how these <laughs> things are going to play out you know, in the public sort of domain uh, before you go public with stuff. The way Clates has um, sort of discussed that there, it, it seems to me that if they had have said, okay, we're not going to punt, we're not going to push somebody out, but it is wrong that she doesn't get in. So we're just going to bring two other people in. If they're playing no, one, three. No, no one, one other person. So they're playing two ball. What? They're playing Tuesday, yeah. Okay, righto. So bring, get, make it a good news story. Popov gets in, and we're also going to give this young amateur or this blah blah someone pick a really good story and whack her in the field, and suddenly you've gone from you've turned the whole thing from being a PR disaster, you've turned it into a real win. I mean, is that not is that not the way they could have handled this? Yeah, absolutely, it is. Um, I'm not sure of the you know the ramifications. I just looked up, and it's 112 people in that field. I'm not sure of the ramifications of making it 114. I can't imagine they'd be too radically different. It means getting up eight minutes earlier, probably, because it's yeah. not going to be a, an issue with daylight in, um, you know, around Calif- Southern California. So, uh, yeah, look, I take on board all Clayton's points. I just thought I do like the idea of not making rules on the fly. Um, there's no doubt that the pub test would fall for Sophia Popov. 99 out of 100 people would vote for her to go in the field. Um, do you, do you think she cares, Clates? Do you do you think she's worried about it? Do you think she feels aggrieved right now? Uh, probably not as much as everyone else is. Yeah, probably, that's my that. You know, having having had three years of Lyme's disease, um, what what are her career earnings? One hundred eight thousand dollars. Yeah, that's right. I think the turnaround is when she carried Rand Van Dam a month ago. And then only got in the next tournament because of, because so many players weren't playing and finished ninth, which got her in the in the British Open. So she wins it. I think she's kind of sitting back. She's probably pretty happy with life right now. And yeah. one week, whether she plays or not, isn't going to change the way her. Well, it's not going to change her life. She's already changed her life. So Correct. one week, either here or there, is probably not upsetting her too much at all. It's just. Telling us that someone who's a major champion isn't in the next major championship because it would never happen in tennis and it shouldn't happen in golf. And it's it's kind of as not it's sillier than the Daniel Berger case, who obviously should be in Augusta this year, but he won after the scheduled Masters and the field was set and they're not changing it. And he's playing some of the best golf of anyone in the world this year, but he's not not playing in Augusta. But he didn't win a major championship, so this, this case is even sillier to me. 
But uh, in but both counts, there, Berger will be in the next Masters and Popov will be in the next A&A Inspiration. So, you know, it's it's a matter of timing. And this, this year has been incredibly, you know, we, we, we're running judgments on these things based on normality of rules yeah, and on normality of year. And I think, you know, if we start making, um, you know, jerky reactions to these things, then where do we where do we actually stop? Because clearly it fails the pub test. I get that, Clates, and that's normally a good thing for me. I'm 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 an advocate of the pub test, but this one, I'm just knee jerk reactions are sort of um, I don't know. They're fraught here in 2020. But the, the counter Clates argument to that is, if there, if there's ever been a year where you know post well well that's not a world war that we need to adapt. This has been it. You yeah, know, this has true. been a year where everyone's had to adapt their life and the way they live. And, you, know, you would think that the, the tour could adapt its rule to cover a, a circumstance like this. Um, Ram, uh, f- f- sorry, Johnson first, Ram second, and, and this will be our segue into the final event of the WebEx Plus. We'll get your thoughts in a moment. But just of all the things that you've seen in golf, and you've seen more than most, um, where do those two putts sit? On the um, on the extraordinary ladder, probably the most that I've seen, probably the highest. I mean, but because I mean, Rams was a crazy part. I mean, thing broke <laughs> fifteen feet, didn't it? So yeah, you know, the chances, the chances of making those the chances of making those putts, I think statistically they worked out were, were less than two percent, given how many how many putts the tour hits from. 40 or 50 feet and how many get hold it's about 1 or 2% so for both of them to make it was it was crazy there was a famous um, PGA in 1960 where Jerry Barber beat Don January and I think in the last three holes he made it from 45 feet 40 feet and then 60 feet he made it from 60 feet on the last hole to either win by one or get in the playoffs but um that was the most I think I, I think, I think I remember reading the telegraph telegrams on that one, Clates. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so that was that was what it was, and yeah, you know, we, we'll we'll be remembering them for a long time. It, it leads us to the final, you know, the tour championship and the final league of the. We, we, we've already had our say on this, and it hasn't. Our position on this hasn't changed for about five years now. Are, are you buying into this? This week, the magnitude of the money impressing you. Is there anything about this week in particular that you f- feel yourself drawn to, or, or is it a bit repulsive? No, it's just appearance money by another name. They don't, they don't pay appearance mm. money on the US tour; they just pay it after the season's finished. Uh, but that's a bit cynical, but it's partly true. Um, yeah, I, there was a guy on Twitter, I remember who it was, put up a survey: Would you rather win the Masters? the Open, the US Open, or the FedEx Cup. And staggeringly, seventy more than 70% went for the US Masters, which would horrify Bobby Jones. He would hate that the Masters was, people saw the Masters was being more important than the US Open or the, or the Open in Britain. <laughs> but what was amazing was there was, there was a, more people would rather have won the FedEx Cup than the, either the US or the British Opens combined. So this wasn't players, this was just punters. 
So yep. there were like 15% had the FedEx Cup, and there were a combined 8 or 9% had, had both open. I think that's probably so, surely Clades. That's that's from people responding from the the wrong side of the tracks, where you know fifteen million US dollars can change their lives. Whereas anyone in the position of a top thirty ranked PGA Tour golfer has already got enough money to tide the next three generations of their family over, and would clearly cherish a title more than another check. Well, you would hope so. It would be interesting to ask the players. I mean, fifteen million is a lot. But, you know, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the, the, the thing that amazed me was how far above the masters, people's perception of the masters, how far above the other, you know, the, the US and British Opens it was. So it just amazed me that, you know, Peter Thompson called it the greatest con job in sports. And in, in fairness, it, it's a genius marketing exercise. The masters yeah. is as brilliant a marketing exercise as any being able to sell McDonald's hamburgers or, or Apple computers. or It's a genius marketing exercise. You know, better, well, as good or better than Wimbledon. And, the, you know, to think that 70% of people think it's, you know, infinitely more important than the two most important tournaments in golf is amazing to me. But anyway, sign of the time. So- so, so let me ask well, you two, and we're jumping around a bit here, but let me ask you two, uh, now that you brought the Masters up, if, Cam, if Cameron Champ, uh, and I'll mention him again a bit later on in the show, but if Cameron Champ decided to turn up to Augusta wearing one black shoe and one white shoe, and on various days he had the names of Jacob Blake, Breonna Taylor, BLM, Papa Champ, uh, written across the, the soles and the leathers of, of the uppers of the shoes, would he be allowed to tee it up? Would he be allowed to stand on the first tee at Augusta with, with that with with a with a, an active kind of protest statement going on on his golf shoes? I wonder. The only the only precedent I know was Lorne Duncan, a friend of mine who was who can't wear shoes because his feet are so bad. He caddied in sandals. He was going to caddy at Augusta for Matt, Matt Fitzpatrick a couple of years ago and they wouldn't let him caddy, so I'm not sure if that's any sort of precedent, but yeah. But um, I don't know. There was a Gary Player has been um, pleading with Augusta to include Lee Elder in the um, honorary starters group with him and Jack, because Arnold's obviously not doing it anymore. So uh, Lee Elder was, of course, the first black man to play at Augusta in 1975. Mm-hmm. Which would kind of be it. So Gary Player's on the case to have Lee Elder join him and Chad Nicholas on the tee on Thursday morning, which would be a very cool statement to make. Um, who knows? Do you feel like there's an appetite? Do you feel like there's an appetite in that neck of the woods with a well, with I that suspect, golf club in particular? Well, I suspect the vast majority of members vote for the president, so I'm not sure that I, I don't know. Who knows? Mm. What do you think, Isaac? This is not specific to your question, Andy, because I think it would be frowned upon, but I think they'd be wary of the furor that it would create and they might just let it through to the keeper given that majority of people won't see it. But um, my first time that I went to Augusta was 2011 and it was in um, you know, a, a time when people were uh, welcoming Tiger back into the fray 
And, you know, he'd done a lot of things in his career that made him clearly the superior golfer to Phil Mickelson. There's no doubt about that. That's not even up for debate, as good as Phil Mickelson was. And I stood, I was just taking the whole event in. And and I I stood next to a funnel of uh, players walking from the back of the ninth green to the 10th tee. And I just tried to take it all in, you know, just have one of those moments of the crowds going nuts for the two heroes. And Tiger walked past first. And the roar was immense, absolutely immense, and just this bubble. And I kid you not, it was twice as loud and twice as uh, ferocious for when Phil walked past. And there's only yep. one yep. possible reason for that to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, to me, is something that I took away from my uh, Augusta experiences. Yeah, I think there's probably something to that. Um, the setup at Olympia Fields, Clates, um it, it, this is clearly what it's come to, isn't it? it, it the only way we can... Uh, we see it at the US Open every year, obviously, but but this is the only way courses can protect themselves. Are, are you are you starting to lose... Um, are you starting to lose momentum for the fight against, you know, alternate ways of setting up golf courses to make them difficult and, and you know, obviously raining equipment back in is this where we've is this the point that we've arrived at now and there's no turning back no i think you i think at some point they're going to have to fix the ball because uh i've said before the the freak in one generation has always been the norm in the next all the way back to ted ray james because davis love john daly uh, hank keeney now it's Bryson. They've always become they've always become the norm in the next. So can golf fit a tour full of players who drive the ball three hundred and forty yards? And the golf courses don't fit. The game the game is so out of scale and out of balance now that you know I don't think the PGA Tour care about golf at all. I, I, I think they have no interest in golf at all except that it's a it's a trade union that's a way to make their members a fortune. And they have no interest in the, you know, what, what's best for the game, which is not their job in fairness. They don't have to. Mm. You know, their, their job is to maximise the income earnings of their members. So um, if their members don't want the board to change, that's what they're going to argue. And, of course, the members are owned by, them, by the equipment manufacturers in many cases who don't want the board to change. For what reason, I don't know. So that's where we're stuck at. And I, I suspect... The RNA, the USGA, and Augusta all want to, all desperately want to change the ball. They all know there's a problem, but their fear is one: they get sued by manufacturers, which I don't get because that, Augusta, the US Open, and the Open can just say, "This is a ball you play with. If you don't want to play, that's fine. Don't play." A bigger fear, I suspect, is that the tour go against them, and the tour say, "Well, we're not going to play by those rules." Um, we're going to stick with the current ball. So then you've got a massive schism in the game where you have, I suspect, the Australian Open, the Japanese Open, the South African Open, perhaps the European Tour, and the majors playing with an amended ball that gets some sort of scale back to the game, and the US Tour going their own way, and it's a complete disaster. But I just don't see that... Yeah. I just... I, at some point, I think they'll get there because I think even the blindest critics of rollback will see that 
this is just this makes no sense anymore. I mean, what is Johnson hit the 605 yard hole? And of course, it's easy to pick out the anomaly, but driver six iron something to the 600 yard yeah. par five. Yeah. Ram 500 yard par four driver wedge. That wasn't what golf was supposed to be. 500 yard holes weren't supposed to be driver wedges. And they should never be. And they shouldn't ever be driver wedges. And people say, well, athletes get faster. Well, yeah, you know, sure they. You know, they've taken drugs and they've run 100 metres faster. And, and, you know, there are better spikes and better tracks and starting blocks. There are reasons why athletes run faster. But a 100-metre track is not a great piece of architecture. It's a 100-metre track. It's flat and it's straight. Golf courses are bits of architecture that were designed to test a, a variety of skills and ask players a variety of questions. When the game gets this far out of balance, you can't ask those questions anymore. Or... If you want a, the longest players in the world to drive in a five under a hole, you've got to make it 560 yards long, which environmentally is kind of stupid because we can get onto the Royal Sydney debate next. But you know, golf takes up so much land. The last thing it needs to do is be taking up more land. So, so we'll, we'll talk see, about but, that. But, yeah. So, so, so the reason right. I ask you that question. Did you, did either of you two happen to see the interview with this Mark Blackburn, who's sort of an up and coming you know tour coach in America? He's won a 2020 Coach of the Year award or something. Like that. And he, he was interviewed on some golf podcast over in America, and he and he was talking about ball speed and club head speed. And you talk about anomalies, Clates. You know, one one generation's anomaly is the next generation's norm. This bloke is, you know, he was saying, look, look everybody, the ball, ball speed's going to be 200 miles an hour. They're all going to be yeah. doing it. It's just the way it is. It's just that Camp Champ at the moment's, you know, got the record at 190 plus. He said, you know, the, the, the next generation, they're all going to be hitting at 200 miles an hour. And club, club, club head speed, which sits at you know, 130, just under 130 miles an hour now, well, that's going to go sort of continue to climb. So, so all these things that you're talking about here, Clates, if this bloke's right and the project the projection is correct, they're all going to be doing it. Like when I say all of them, I don't mean one hundred percent of them, but but it's not going to be two or three who are going to be doing it in and, and over corners and over trees that you know, it's going to be it'll be half the it'll be half the field doing this stuff. Uh, no doubt. I mean you know that out there that every fourteen year old kid is being taught who's serious about playing golf for a living or playing on the on the pro tour. They're all they're all being told you've got to, these are the numbers you've got to get to to compete. Yeah. And if you look at the stats, they're right. You can't You know, if you're Zach Glairling, who's longer, who was who's a longer hitter than Greg Norman was, statistically, you can't really expect to win. You can you can make the top 125 and make a great living, but you're not going to beat Johnson and Watson and Kepka and. Um, and, and Bryson and these guys, you can't beat them from 40 yards behind them. It's impossible. Mm. Mm. And, and power's always been rewarded. You know, the best players, all, not not all of them, but you know, Nicholas dominated golf and Tiger dominated golf and Sam Snead dominated golf with Hogan and Jones was a long hitter. So, so the best players have always dominated the game because they've got that advantage. But, but now, as I say, that. The scale of the golf course is completely out now. The golf courses can't contain the power and they can't ask the questions they were designed to ask. Clayton, one last question about this before we move um, because I really would like to ask you about Royal Sydney, but Olympia Fields was brutal, absolutely brutal, um, and the scoring reflected that. Um, 
I was fascinated to see the the discussion going around social media around rough outside bunkers. Um, and I know you've got thoughts on that. Was that everyone seemed to like the fact that the pros were struggling to make pars, which was, you know, that's up some people's alley and not up others. But can you walk us through your thoughts on rough around bunkers? Because I, I know you've touched on it before, but it seems to me to be, uh, you know, not the way those courses were originally designed as well. Yeah, well, well, in Australia, we always, almost always, cut courses properly where the, where the fairway grass runs right to the edge of the bunker. So the ball actually can run into the bunker. And if you're good enough to hit it up against the edge of a bunker to get a better angle, perhaps, then you're not going to be penalised by being in the rough. So on, on any level, it makes no sense that bunker's in the rough. Yet it's par for the course, in, you know, for want of a better term, it's par for the course in America, where you see so many bunkers in the rough. And I don't get it. It's just... Um, it's, a, it's a formulaic way they have of setting up a lot of their golf courses. Having said that, if you go to most of their best golf courses, you know, go to Shinnecock or um, Sand Hills or Cypress Point, that's not the way they do it there. But so many places copy the tour. And the tour's formulaic way of setting up golf, which is a certain width of fairways. And if the bunkers are outside that width, then you put them in the rough. And it's just a, it makes no sense to me on any level why they do it. But, um, of course, having them in the fairway means having wider fairways, and that means probably having lower scores, and you know, that means having the debate over the ball. And people think that if you can yeah. distort the dimensions of a golf course to determine a winning score, and the winning score is high, therefore it's a good golf course and a good setup. Where arguably the opposite is the case. You know, it's a bad setup and a, and a badly, certainly a badly mown golf course. So. Yeah. You know, I, I just think we're so lucky in Australia to have, to, to have always had superintendents who've understood how to cut golf courses properly, as they do in Britain. But, but in America, they they do it differently to us, and I think nowhere near as well. Which brings me neatly, Clates, to a, a massive, massive problem, growing concern in Australian golf around Royal Sydney Golf Club and the proposed redevelopment um, there was an article in the Sydney Morning Herald through the week which uh, basically said that the development was um, up in the air now based on the concerns of some local environmental activists. Shall we say, is that the best way of putting it, do you think, Andy? I'm not 100% sure of the, yeah, the terminology. Yeah, that's, but that's about right, I think. Yeah, yeah. 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 Clates, I'm, I'm fascinated by your view on this. Uh, this is in so many ways, a critical golf course for all of golf in Australia. Uh, if you talk about influence, this is right at the top of the list and what happens here has a huge impact on what happens around the country. Well, in a way, but you know, Royal City has been, the, you know, it's almost the last of the country's best courses to go through this um, restoration slash redesign slash better management of trees process. You know, I've done it in a bunch of courses at Lake Carrup and Victoria and the Grange and the lakes, a bunch of courses around the country. And I contributed to the submission, which the paper misquoted, 
that Royal Sydney put to the council. But it's, you know, the what was amazing to me was that not so much the article, which you don't expect the article to go into any nuanced understanding of the debate of trees in Gulf War. You know, it's a kind of headline-grabbing article about the locals who don't want the trees destroyed. But um, my argument's always been about golf in Australia, and to, a, and to a larger question that the environment in Australia, where you would need to talk to someone who knows a lot more about it than me, but my view is that when we came here in 1770 or whatever it was, there was no understanding of if we mess with this environment that the Aboriginals have managed forever pretty well, we're in danger of screwing it up. So there was no understanding of that principle. So we imported rabbits and cane toads and carp and kaikuya and European trees and European farm animals that you know, trash the grasslands. And so in its own small way, golf's a microcosm of that. When we planted golf courses out in the 1920s after the, all the great ones, most of the great ones were built here, there was still a reverence for European trees. And so we planted a lot of European trees. And then after the Second World War, people understood that was probably not the best thing. So it was seen that anything native was okay. So well, let's plant you know, spotted gums in Perth and lemon-centered gums in Melbourne and phosphorus in Melbourne from Western Australia. So there was no reverence for locally indigenous plants. Yet if you said to every member of the golf course, should the golf course feel natural? Or even people who weren't, didn't play golf or weren't members, should a golf course feel natural? They would almost, everyone would say, 100% would say yes. But the surest way to make a piece of land feel unnatural is to plant vegetation on it, trees and small heathland plants, whatever, that, don't, that, doesn't, that don't belong. And putting a tree that's, that's indigenous to Coffs Harbour on a golf course in Melbourne, or they always feel stupid in our place. So Royal Sydney, is a, like many other courses, a classic case of a mass importation of non-Indigenous vegetation that creates a, a look and a feel that people love and they, people assume that every tree is great and every tree is perfect. And my argument would be the long-term plan of Royal Sydney, which I know Harley Cruz's plan is doing the vegetation for Gil Hansen. His long-term plan would be to get that piece of land back to show off the vegetation the way it was before anyone came here. Clates, how so hard is it... How- how hard is it? You've been through this so many times. How difficult is it to convince you know, those in opposition to, to the points you're making here, which to me, and I'm sure Hazy and a lot of others are incredibly valid. How hard is it to convince people that it's for the good and it's going to be okay and you're going to be happy? You're going to be happy with well, what you've got. Well, it's impossible to convince them. You're never going to convince people who are never going to change their mind. And, and who have a fixed position on the on, on the argument? Either way, no one's ever going to no one's ever going to convince me that my view of the role in trees in golf and, and the way trees and the sort of trees you should plant is wrong. Because you know, and I'm arrogant enough to think that well, well, everyone else, every other critic and architect over the history of the game has argued the same point. No one's argued the other point. No one no one argues the other point. It's okay to plant anything you want on a golf course. And the more trees, the better. And if you get trees in the, in the road of the golf, that's fine. So there are two issues at Royal Sydney. There's one, 
what it's planted with. And two, the trees that are, that are in the road of the golf. So, for example, on the fourth hole, if you drive to the inside corner of the dog leg to set up the best line to play the second shot into that green, you're behind about, or you used to be, I've been there for three or four years, you're behind a chunk of radiata pine trees, which are weeds anyway. You're behind a bunch of trees. So you've, so you've got to play to the outside of the dog leg and then play across the massive bunker in front of the green because of the trees on the inside corner. Well, if Alistair McKenzie came back, who had a huge influence on the design of that golf course, he would just shake his head and say, cut the trees down, as would yeah. Tom Doak, as, would, as has Bill Hands. Same with the 12th hole. Same with the 18th hole. So get the trees away from the goal. So, so what the people who, who are defending the trees don't understand and don't want to understand and don't care about is there's a limited role for trees in goals. And it's absolutely have them as part of the scenery, as Harry Colt said, but get them off the stage. And at Royal Sydney, there are trees on the stage, and worse, they're the wrong trees. So all Gil's doing is doing what any responsible architect would do when asked by a club, how do we make this a better golf course? And bear in mind, Royal Sydney's gone from being ranked in the top 10 in Australia to barely being in the top 50 because they've, I'm not going to say dropped the ball, but because that. Places like Lake Carnup and Victoria and Kingston East and the Lakes and um, Bonny Doon and um, you know, the Grange and a bunch of other courses of Kingston East, Victoria, have um, been managing their golf courses much better over the last 40 years. So Royal Sydney's gone from being ranked in the top 10 to being barely the 50th best course in the country. And they're fed up with that. They hire one of the, the best architects in the world and they say, how do we make this a better golf course? And he, he comes in and says, here's how you make this a better golf course. And, and you get into an argument with people who don't play golf, who don't care about golf. Yeah. If you look at the replies to the article in the Sydney Morning Herald, the majority of people want it turned into a public park. Well, it's fine if you want to pay the members who, own, who, who bought the land a century ago. If you want to pay them a billion dollars for it, fine. I'm sure that, you know, they'd be happy to go to New South Wales and find some land out there and build a golf course on the cliffs. But... I'm not sure anyone who wants to turn into a public park wants to pay the owners of the land a billion dollars for it. So we're at this impasse where, you know, what do you do? So, so you've got to hope that, you know, the people who, don't, who hate golf, who want to turn into a public park, who don't have any understanding of golf or its architecture, don't have an oversized say in what happens. And sure, sure if, you know, the local council, the people have control over it, say to Royal Sydney, you can't do this, then Gill comes back and compromises his design around the, goal, around the trees. Or he walks away and says, too hard, I can't be bothered anymore. And Sydney, in a city with not that many, you know, certainly about 10 or 15% of the number of fantastic golf courses that Melbourne has, yeah. Sydney just gets let down again and becomes a place that's got, you know, I would say three or four, I would say three, but that's biased opinion, um, four golf courses in that city that are as good as they can be. New South Wales, Bonnie Doon and the Lakes. The three courses in that city that are as good as they can be. And Harley's done a pretty good job at Kalara, so that's pretty good. But, you know, Royal Sydney can be a much, much better golf course than it is now. And, and if the tree lovers win the case, then Royal Sydney remains the 50th best course in the country. Now, Royal Sydney as a club deserves better than that. And of course, the other unsaid part of the argument is 
because it's the bluest of blue blood clubs in Australia, you know, it makes Royal Melbourne look like a public course, then there's this kind of, they're the Sydney toss and let's make sure they don't get away with it. You know, yeah. This yeah. is just arrogant money and power wanting its way. Well, maybe it is, but Gil Hans doesn't care about that. Gil Hans is just, how do I make this the best golf it can be? And I think Sydney deserves to have better golf. And when you hire one of the best architects in the world, let him do what he wants. Clayton, I don't want to be argument. accused of. I don't want to be accused of leading the witness. But is it or is it not true that uh, there would actually end up being more trees on the course in the proposed redevelopment than there are now? Yeah, yeah. There was the plan is to I think plant seven hundred and take out five hundred and five hundred and sixty nine. So there are more trees. Now. Of course, you know that, that's always the you know Mike Clayton has trees argument. No one ever sees or no one ever wants to look at the trees he planted. I don't have any numbers, but I'll bet we planted more trees than we ever cut down. But mm. all, all I've ever argued for is let's go back and responsibly plant these golf courses out for the next hundred, you know, with the next hundred years in mind, with the plants that grew here before before anyone ever got here, let alone before anyone ever built a golf course on this land. So, so the purest golf course in Australia, certainly the the purest suburban golf course in Australia, the north course at Peninsula Kingswood, where Andy, where you're a member, which is purely yeah. now the, the indigenous coastal managums that were growing there long before there was a golf course there, and all those beautiful little heathland plants. That's, that's the way the whole of the sand belt should have been planted out. And it wasn't the fault of the people who planted the golf courses out in 1920 and 1930, and then who carried it on after the Second World War, because... It's the old, well, they didn't know any better. And they didn't, and, and that's not their fault. But I think as a principle, it's unarguable that the best thing for the environment is to restore it back to the way it was for thousands and thousands of years. And putting radiata pine trees on a golf course on the Mornington Peninsula or, or cypress trees or eucalypts from all over the country just because they're native. Or, or you know, Russia is way closer to London than than Melbourne is from Perth. Would, would anyone argue that a, that a Russian tree is native to London? Of course they would. It's, it's a preposterous argument. So, you know, why is it that we decide to relocate the Fisopholius, those beautiful red flowering gums of Margaret River, plant them in Metropolitan? Well, there happens to be one great one at Metropolitan by the clubhouse, but there isn't one other good one on the golf course because it's just not the environment they grow very well in. <laughs> That's a great point. We get history, Andy, we get oh, geography, we get all sorts of things here. I love it. So, I, so love what, it. I can listen. What would be really interesting what what would be really interesting would be to get a guy like Tim Lowe who wrote a book called Feral Future, which is a great book on the Australian environment. Get someone who really knows what they're talking about. Not just someone who's got a, a biased golf course architect. But get someone who really understands the environment to talk about it. You know, it's the same argument about tea tree in Melbourne. One thinks tea, one thinks tea tree is indigenous to the sand belt. Well, it was a fringe coastal plant that grew within 500 metres of the sea. So I, think, I think Google says perhaps up to 1,000 metres from the sea, which doesn't mean tea tree is indigenous at Hungdale or Metropolitan or Kingston Heath, which are way further than that away from the coast. And, and the problem with tea tree is it smothers all the great tiny little heathland plants that would have proliferated in Sandringham and Oakley and before the golf courses were built. So, so a huge part of the redevelopment of 
Victoria and Kingston Heath and Peninsula was getting back all those cool little heat lamp plants that the tree lovers, for want of a better term again, that's been disparaging, but people who love the trees often don't care about the tiny little plants that are six inches high that add so much to the feel and texture of the golf course. They couldn't oh, mate, if they took a walk around yesterday. Yeah, but if they took a walk around it, Clates, they'd love it. They'd, they'd, they'd love the environmental feel and the sense you get. I mean, it's not a treeless golf course. It's not a vegetation-free zone. It's it's full of life and colour and, you know, it's, it's all of that yeah. stuff. But, but people get attached to, you know, big trees and they like walking under them and seeing all sorts of things happen under there. So, hey, um, yeah. it's fascinating. It really is. I, I, it's, such a, it's such a rare insight, the um, capacity for us to sit here and... Um, you know, let you pour this stuff out of your brain uh, with us. We we do have to get a wriggle on, unfortunately. We've got some time constraints. Um, but um, we'll pick it up again sometime, I reckon. Thanks again for joining us, mate. We, we're, we're always better for the conversation. Thanks, Danny. And then come and live down... Just, just yes. Come and buy a house down here. We can play golf at Sanders Beach and play golf on the beach oh. and... I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna continue to make my wife listen to this uh, this podcast, uh, particularly <laughs> right. when you say things like that. Good on you, Clates. See you Thanks, soon. Clates. Thanks, guys. Mike Clayton joining us on Inside the Ropes. There's a lot there, folks. Um, <laughs> a lot there, and it's all worth listening to. Hazy, I reckon. Not a especially waste if you're word. especially if you're booking a, an airline ticket from Moscow to Heathrow. I've just been enamoured <laughs> with some good. magnificent information. <laughs> That's a very good point. Okay, a break. We're going to hear from Steph Kiriakou on the other side of this. You're listening to Inside the Ropes. Let's go back Inside the Ropes with Golf Australia. Welcome back to Inside the Ropes. Fascinating, Andy, to hear Clates. I could listen to him talk all day, but we had to keep pressing on. So apologies to those who were um, loving every second of Clates' thoughts there. But we need to push on. Um, It was a great week, as you alluded to, for so many Aussies around the world. Uh, not least of whom was Steph Kiriakou in just her fourth tournament as a professional player, Andy. Finished fifth in the Czech Ladies Open just outside Prague. And we had the very good fortune earlier in the week for Stacey Peters, one of our regular co-hosts here, to catch up with Steph live from the Czech Republic. Welcome back to Inside the Ropes. And we're so lucky to be joined by our young Golf Australian rookie squad member, Steph Kiriakou. Welcome, Steph. Thanks, Stace. <laughs> Whereabouts uh, are you joining us from today? Uh, just in Prague at the moment, and then I'll be on my way to Switzerland this afternoon. Nice. And so you've obviously you've just finished playing the uh, the Czech Open, a fantastic result there, T5, if I'm correct. Is that right? That's correct. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> with uh, yeah, with fantastic rounds, Steph of uh, 69, 71, and sixty six. A little uh, clickety click, low round of the day. Do you want to talk us through your week a little bit, Steph? The start of the week was pretty good. Um, when I was playing the practice rounds, I, I I don't know, I felt pretty comfortable there. It was like playing back at home. Um, the course was in really good conditions. Green, the greens were really fast, which is how I like it and um, yeah everything just felt good pre-tournament and then going into the rounds like I played solid the whole week but I think the only thing that changed on the last day was how many putts dropped Um, yeah I hit it good all week I was rolling the ball really well but yeah I just had a few extra lip-ins on that last day. (laughs) 
some lip ins, not lip outs, yeah? Yeah, not not no lip outs, thank God. <laughs> yeah, nice. I mean, it just from an outsider looking in, Steph, it makes, you know, it's so great to see. It's like you've gone over, you know, you've turned professional, start of the year, obviously. The world gets turned upside down. You don't get to go off like you had originally planned. Um, and then, you know, you've jumped in, I guess, head first here, going to play two LPGA events. Um, even, hey, let's go, let's go back a week um, and talk about the British Open. I mean, anybody that was talking or looking, following along the, uh, the British Open, Let's be honest. You've got to scroll a fair way down to find Steph Kuriaku's name, right? But I guess, but I guess the, the more, what I'm saying, Steph, is the prize that you took away from that is so much more than a tied seventy uh, second place. Like the confidence you must take from playing a British Open, playing a major, playing the weekend of a major. Um, do you know what? Do you know what I'm saying, there, Steph? Yeah, yeah, I do. Thanks, Stace. Um, <laughs> Yeah, playing in in the open was something else. It was it was amazing. Um, yeah, I told a few people that like it was it, like it's a really big jump for me playing a- amateur events at the beginning of the year to you know playing my first major in the same year. Like it's it's huge for me. Um, yeah, there was definitely a big learning curve there. Um, more on the mental side, I kind of took a peep at the scoreboard and I. I don't know what happened. I just had like a brain explosion and then, I don't know, something happened. But I didn't know it during the round. It was till after the tournament where I figured out like why I did that. And, yeah, that was a huge learning curve. And I took that into this week and we had a much better result this week. You don't have to scroll as far down. <laughs> I think you know what I meant when I say that because you, you know, you played uh, you played seventy two holes. You played sixty of them as good as the winner did that week. But then I guess it's the difference. That's the difference in you know crossing out those twelve. What would we say? Not so good, rubbishy holes. Yeah, and that's <laughs> yeah. where you've got to learn something. And and I guess you clearly have. You just you just said it. So I think it's fantastic that you have done that, and so quickly, Steph. Like you've turned it around in a week. Yeah, yeah, it's been good. I had to really analyze um, last week, so I'm really glad I figured it out and changed it because I didn't want that happening anymore. <laughs> yeah, is that something you think you just uh, kind of worked out yourself? You just I don't know, spoke to your coach about it or just sort of looked back on things? Um, that was something I kind of worked out myself because, again, it was it was more mental. It wasn't technical at all. Like, I played good for majority of it considering the conditions. Um, so, yeah, I think all the mental stuff, you kind of have to figure that one out on your own. Um, and, yeah, it was kind of – honestly, it was kind of easy to pick up because as soon as, like – it was like as soon as I saw that scoreboard, it's just like nerves kicked in so much. So like I knew like that was it. Like I would, like I was pretty certain that it wasn't anything else because I know my golf game's good enough to compete with all these players. So just got to fix my mental game and then I'm ready. I'm set. <laughs> oh, it's great. It's really great to hear you uh, You talk like that, Steph. And I think you've uh, – yeah, you've come a long way in that sort of space. And I think you, you clearly identified that 
your best golf is actually very competitive out there. You know, and learning to learning to win, learning to contend. I think you you're already doing it. You've already done it. So you know, keep doing that, and then the next thing we know, we'll uh, hopefully be seeing you on the LPGA. Hey. <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> Give me a couple of years. <laughs> exactly. No, that's great. Well, uh, thanks very much for joining us on Inside the Ropes today, Steph, and uh, best of luck for your upcoming events. No worries. Thank you. Uh, fascinating, Andy, to hear the way a 19-year-old woman is developing mentally um, in those sort of uh, surrounds. I think it's awesome. Great interview by Stace. Um, but yeah, just to hear the rapid development of Steph Kiriakou, I think she's a name we're going to hear much more of. And I was really thrilled to hear her say that she's happy to cut her teeth and learn the ropes in Europe. I think, you know, a la Adam Scott in a previous generation, Greg Norman, um, a great thing for her to be concentrating on for the moment. So well done to her. And yeah, I just wanted to touch base with some of the other Australian achievements around the world and staying on the women's game, Catherine Kirk, uh, 65, 68, 66. On a normal week, that would just about get you the chocolates on the LPGA Tour, but it was good enough for a tie for seventh in uh, in Arkansas. Minji Lee just rolls on, banking money, tied 28th. Sarah Kemp was the other Aussie to make a cut there. Um, a, a magnificent achievement by, by Catherine Kirk. She's in good form with the A&A Inspiration mm. coming up. She is in good nick. She's in really, really good nick. So uh, well done to her, Minji. That's 65 in the final round. Saw her go past a few and just get a few extra dollars in the bank, uh, which is clearly what she needs at the moment. Uh, <laughs> any others before we get... We've, we're going to... There's a bit more Stacey Peters gold on the other side of the break, so we'll get to that in a second. Anything else before we there get... There is. I, I guess yeah. just wrapping up the Australians, Minwoo Lee, um, a, a great weekend, 68-69 at the Belfry in the UK Championship. Mm. finished tied for 11th on the European Tour. Wade Ormsby, uh, tied for 25th. Jake McLeod, a tie for 31st. So good weekend for the Aussies there. Uh, Harrison Endicott was the only Aussie who made the cut at the Corn Ferry Tour Championship. And another, an increasingly regular shout-out to Rod Pampling, who at the Champions Tour <laughs> uh, um, was the Charles Schwab Series at, at Ozarks. He finished tied 11th. And had it not been for a bloke called Mickelson, might have uh, been right where the whips were cracking. So 64, 65, 72, the final round a bit flat. But Pamps is going to be in this conversation all year, Andy. No doubt about that. So a break uh, on the other side of it. Another name to add to your little black book of up-and-coming Australian golfers. We'll find out more about Matty Hinson-Tolchard when we come back. Let's go back inside the ropes with Golf Australia. Almost at the end, it's been packed. There's a lot of stuff to get through this week, and Stacey Peters has been busy. We heard the chat uh, a couple of minutes ago that she had with um, Steph Kiriakou, and for other reasons, a bit closer to home, uh, she's spent some time with a, another young lady whose name seems to be emerging with a bit of pace, Hazy. It really is. Madison Hinson-Tolchard, uh, one of the just hordes of awesome young talent coming out of WA. I couldn't be prouder of them. Um, they're such a great young bunch. She's rolled up for the first time um, in the history, and it's a very long and storied history, Andy, of the Royal Fremantle Amateur Open. Uh, a woman has taken it down, and not only taken it down, she's smashed the field by eight shots to win the, win the, the crown. Now, this is significant for that reason alone, but there's so much more, including that she's taken the course record, Andy, off the red plates at Royal Fremantle, a renowned tough course, and not the longest, but hilly and, and quite penal if you miss the fairways. Uh, there was a name, Minji Lee was on the, uh, yeah. the honour roll there for the lowest score at, uh, at Royal Fremantle off the plates. 
And she was a five under, which was a 68. Uh, Maddie Tolchard has bowled this over by four shots, Andy. What? 69 under par 64, um, including a hole in one, uh, which is obviously phenomenal in itself. But uh, just one of the great rounds. And Stacey Peters caught up with her. To, you could clearly, clearly hear the excitement in her voice in this interview. And Stacey's done another great job to catch up with Madison Hinson-Tolchard. We're so lucky to be joined by young West Australian Madison Hinson-Tolchard. Welcome, Maddie. Hey, Stace. How are you doing? Very good. So you're coming to us fresh off your victory in the Royal Fremantle Amateur Open. Congratulations, Maddie. <laughs> Thanks so much. It was obviously a fantastic weekend with some amazing scoring. Um, we really wanted to touch base on that first round, nine under par, 64. And, um, you know, I hear you've taken down a pretty uh, a pretty good course record, yeah? Yeah, um, I took down Minji's course record from 2013 of her five under par, and I beat it by four shots. Have you, uh, have you reminded Minji of that yet? Uh, no, I don't think she knows. <laughs> well, she's a regular on Inside the Ropes, so we'll be sure to mention that next time, Maddie. <laughs> so, um, do you want to take us through that round a little, Mad? Or, you know, did you actually, did you realise what you were doing? Did you realise you how low you were actually going? Um, and then, obviously, the, uh, the one on the scorecard um, helps things a little bit, hey? Well, you would... You wouldn't think I would have had nine under the way I started off my day. Um, I nearly hit my first tee shot on the road. Um, it went so far left behind the trees and it was terrible. And I somehow managed to get it out and have a chip on the green and make a par, which was sort of what kick-started everything. And then I hit it left off the tee box again on two. And I was like, oh, my God, what's happening? And then I made birdie off that tee shot and I couldn't believe it. And then I made a string of three birdies on holes five, six, and seven. And then I made birdie on nine as well. So I was five under through nine holes. And I was like, what is going on? And then made an easy par up 10, a good birdie on 11. And then I hit my shot of 12. And as soon as I hit it, I was just like, that's such a good shot. And it landed on the green. But I had no idea it had gone in the hole. And then I saw on the tee box, the group in front of me was Hayden Barron, Hayden Hopewell and Ryan Peake. And I just saw their arms get like thrown up in the air and they were like, it went in, it went in. And I was like, no way. And then Josh and Connor came up and they were giving me high fives and everything. It was so cool. <laughs> uh, that That's awesome, Matt. You just really wanted to remind the guys that, um, you know, you were here, you were meaning business, especially this was the first time that females were able to play in the Royal Fremantle Amateur Open. So I guess, um, you know, you were really making a making a stance on day one, hey? Yeah, definitely. It was just one of those days where everything went right and it got to the point where we were just laughing after every birdie I made. It just got stupid. <laughs> Oh, that's that's fantastic, Matt. Uh, great to hear. And what what does it mean to you, I guess, to to hold that course record now? And knowing the likes of, well, you've knocked off Minji Lee, who you know she goes okay, and probably the likes of Hannah Green as well have played around Royal Frio quite a lot. Um, what does it mean to you? Um, Royal Fremantle is actually one of the courses that I enjoy playing most in WA. Um, I've won the Junior Open there the last 
two years, so 2018, 2019, and then to win this and hold the course record as well, like that's pretty cool. And Hannah actually sent me a message um, on Saturday afternoon saying well done and congratulations, which was really cool to get a message of Hannah because she's obviously playing at the moment and just for her to take the time and send that message was really cool. Yeah, she Greeny is the real deal, isn't she? We're very lucky, uh, very lucky to have her in LSA. <laughs> we we definitely are. Very good, Maddie. Well, um, hey, congratulations again on being the the first female winner of the Royal Fremantle Amateur Open by a small uh, margin of eight shots. Really <laughs> just rubbing it into the guys uh, to finish yeah ten under par. So really separate yourself from the field there, Maddie. So congratulations again, and thanks for coming on today. Thanks so much, Stace. I'm, I'm just all in her camp. She's she's happening, and she can see the product of a, that great group of players they've got over there. And I did want to mention um, a, a, another name, Kirsten Rudgley. We've mentioned a few times, Andy. I think she mm. might have shot 66 a, again um, at Cottesloe up the road at the weekend too, which is phenomenal. I the women over there are just kicking butt. The blokes are too, but phenomenal. Um, just absolutely phenomenal. They're getting a lot right over there. That's that's impressive scoring here. So just wrapping up the stuff around the country, Andy, I want to mention the Capera Bowl. We'll try and chat to the general manager of uh, the Capera Country Golf Club in a few weeks, but they've announced for one of the national rankings events uh, that women will be involved for the first time this week. Uh, entries are now open for the Capera Bowl, which is fantastic. And from a Golf Australia perspective, I wanted to um, just mention, uh, if you hope you don't mind me sort of going into our programs here, Andy, but I want to let our listeners know about our new national introductory program uh, we launched called Get Into Golf. And the program's designed for beginner adults to fast track to get you out on the course over a five-week period. Four program types available, including for everyone, women, seniors, all abilities. If you know anyone who has always considered playing or want to share your love for the game, visit golf.org.au forward slash get into golf, all one word. Don't be disheartened if there's no one near, if there's no one near you yet because there's centers being announced uh, and added every week right around the country. Uh, and in addition, Andy, there's also an incentive campaign for centres with the first 60 clubs or facilities to register a program. They'll get access to $250 facility marketing grant. So hit up that website for more, www.golf.org.au forward slash get into golf. Good thing. Can't have enough people playing the game. Um, okay, there's been heaps there. Uh, Hopefully you've enjoyed it. There's a lot to take in when you get Mike Clayton on the show. Um, we didn't even get to ask about the uh, the little cameo that Elvis Smiley had uh, and made on the Alan Jones show uh, earlier in the week. So um, maybe that might we'll be a good thing for you and I. Yeah, maybe we'll take that offline. Um, <laughs> but good on whatever, whichever, whichever side of the political divide you sit on. Um, good on Alan Jones for promoting uh, young Australian sporting talent. That's um, that in and of itself can't be a bad thing and we should acknowledge that so well done and, and, and on that absolutely absolutely and we uh, i couldn't agree with you more on that one and elvis smiley i want to make mention of the way he dominated the stroke play event at the queensland amateur last week i mean the scores he turned in were just phenomenal uh and then on the uh when we turn to match play andy leon higo won the women's side having been four down early in the round which is extraordinary um but also uh, although Elvis Smiley uh, didn't quite win, I think he got knocked out in the semi-finals. Louis Dobler won his second Queensland Amateur too, so shout out to him as well. Absolutely. Uh, that's it. Another show in the can, Inside the Ropes, episode number 179, done and dusted. We'll be back next week to do it all again. Hazy, I'll see you then. See you, Murray.
Have a good weekend. Have a good week in golf, everybody. Uh, thanks for tuning in.